Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness in speaking to us and then in your wisdom having your word recorded in this book. And so as we come to it, may we come not like any other book, no matter how great that book is, not is just ink on a page, but what you tell us your word is and what we know it to be, your living and active word. God, thank you that your word never returns void, but always accomplishes the purposes for which you intend it. And so would your word work out its purposes in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our lives, in our city, in our county, in our country, in our world today? What we ask and what we need more than anything else, and this is true if someone's in this room and they're not even sure how they ended up here this morning, or they haven't walked into a church service in seven and a half years, God, or if they've been walking with King Jesus for, for 74 years, God, which each and every one of us need most is that we would leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more confident in what he's done, and more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so might you send the spirit to, to lift Christ high that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Over the years, I've shared, uh, kind of pseudo-preached, you don't really preach in sermons, but shared from a number of different Bible passages when I do uh, wedding ceremonies. But over, I don't know, probably five, six, ten years ago, something like that, I shifted and there's really only one verse and I do it in every single wedding and it's Genesis 2.25 and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And the reason I do that verse is I can't think of a better vision for marriage than to be to be known, to be exposed, to be vulnerable before another without fear, without shame, without the worry of what they might see, knowing they're going to see it all. It's also my hope for this church, that we would be able to be exposed, to be seen, to be known without shame, no, no need to hide, really the ability to, to be honest. Redeemer's house rules, we have 10 of them. The first one is the first for a reason. It really sets the, the, the table and the context for the rest is it's okay to not be okay. And really what that rule is saying is that you can be honest in this place, that you can be honest amongst these people, that you can say, this is what's going on in my life good, and this is what's going on in my life that's not so good or a mess, that it's okay to not be okay. Now that sentiment is not unique to the church. Of all of the house rules that we're going to go through, this is the one that you will most hear in our culture at large. For example, the National Park Service um, came across this on their Instagram account, which they have a fantastic Instagram account. Say this, it's okay if you fall apart sometimes. S'mores fall apart and we still love them. <laughs> Gives you all the feels, doesn't it? Or there's a, a, a meme going around about Eeyore. One wonderful thing about Eeyore is that even though he is basically clinically depressed, he still gets invited to participate in adventures and shenanigans with all of his friends, and they never expect him to pretend to feel happy. They just love him anyway, and they never leave him behind or ask him to change. It's okay to not be okay. Now, the, if that's true in the culture, we definitely want to see it in the church. Unfortunately, the church is sometimes the place where it's like the least comfortable place 
to not be okay. Give you an example of a church sign I came across recently. Uh, I think we'll put, so don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. (laughs) Kind of depends how you phrase that one and where you put the punctuation on that one. That could be a really kind offer. We're going to carry your anxieties with you. We're going to minister to you. Or we're going to step on you as you're drowning. Um, Depending on the type of church environment you've been in, the type of Christian community, the type of homes you grew up in, the type of friend groups you run in, the church may have been a great help to you in the midst of the times there it wasn't okay. And they might have been really, really harsh and really hard. They maybe said, it's okay, you don't have to hide, you don't have to wear a mask, like we all fall apart. Or they might have said, you need to fake it till you make it. And don't really bring your true selves into the light. What we want in this church, and I believe what the Bible pushes, provides, models, is that no matter where you are at, no matter what's going on, if you're struggling, it's okay to not be okay. And if you're sinning, it's okay to be a mess. If you're doing great, praise God. If you're not struggling, with sin, you're a liar. So, I mean, we're all, we all are. We all are. It's okay. It's okay to not be okay. And so we're going to look at these two categories of it's okay to not be okay in our struggles, whatever those are, and in sins, whatever those are, starting with struggles and an invitation to be honest about them with others, with God, and even with ourselves. And we're going to anchor this in Psalm 88. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You made me a whore to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Feel free to grab a seat. That's that's an honest, honest psalm. That last line literally is, darkness is my only companion. My only friend is darkness. 
what this psalmist is saying is life can be hard sometimes. Give you some examples. This is not the only place in the Bible that this occurs. Elijah, one of God's prophets in 1 Kings 18, had this incredible showdown scene with what we know as the prophets of Baal, this pagan god. He's on this mountaintop. And, 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 and in this account, Elijah, in, in confidence and faith in God, is, is, is vindicated for his commitment to God in the midst of Israel at that time, who was going after anything other than God, and he has this incredible just power encounter, comes out victorious, and then just a, 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 a few verses later in chapter 19, just a couple scenes later, here's what we read in 1 Kings 19, 4 through 6, a man who just experienced the great highs of triumph, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stone and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Just, just incredible highs, incredible successes, incredible achievements. Everything in life is, is going so well. And then you're in the pit. And I love this scene. He, he, God, I'm done. I, I just don't want to go on. He has an angel come and minister to him, and, and you would think that would revive him. And I love that he eats, and then he just goes back to sleep. He just goes back to bed. How about Naomi from, from the book of, of Ruth? Her, her name means sweet. And in the first chapter, you see the scene of a famine in the land. And so uh, uh, Naomi and her husband and her two sons end up having to go into Moab. And in Moab, um, her, her husband dies and her sons die. And so she ends up going back to her hometown. And in Ruth 1, 19 through 21, it says this. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? The, the name Naomi means pleasant or sweetness. And she says, don't call me sweetness. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Saying life is hard. How about Paul? The, the apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, was he, he's got to be one of the most courageous, like uh, just driven, you know, he, he's in prison. He's the guy who has lines like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It doesn't matter what you throw at me. He'd been shipwrecked multiple times. He'd been whipped. He'd been stoned three different occasions. I mean, it seemed like he, nothing could ever stop him or deter him or slow him down. His faith was too strong for that, right? But then you have places like 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Elijah and Naomi and Paul. Jesus. Certainly not Jesus. Of course, he never got down. Of course, he never struggled. Well, God's word in Isaiah 53, 3, this prophecy 700 years before Christ actually gave the, 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 um, the promo that, yes, he would indeed face a tremendous amount of sorrow. 
53.3 says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But as Jesus faced those sorrows, I'm sure it never disturbed him. But then we have places like this in Luke 22, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he was wrongfully accused and dragged off to a mock trial before he was killed on a cross. Luke 22, 41 and following, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And then listen to this, and being in agony. Being in agony. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Or Matthew 26, 36 and following. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. And taking with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. Literally, that phrase means my soul is swallowed in sorrow. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay and to be honest about it. It doesn't necessarily show a lack of faith. It doesn't show a lack of confidence in God. It's not always just saying God is not good. It's just saying life can be hard and sometimes hard things happen. Recently, I read a book um, from Alan Noble, who I've really enjoyed as an author, and it's called On Getting Out of Bed. And the subtitle is The Burden and Gift, or The Gift and Burden of Living. And it is like life is both gift and burden. The title, On Getting Out of Bed, really captures the ongoing theme, which is this, to get out of bed is an act of courage. And where he pulls that from is a, is a novel called The Road. And in this story of The Road, it's this apocalyptic kind of future sort of, sort of book where it's a, um, most of humanity has died and those that have not died um, get turned into some version of a, of a monster except a very few, a handful of people. And, and two of those people were a, a dad and his, his son. And in this story, because they're in a world where most people have died, it's just gone totally sideways and everyone else is a monster trying to, trying to harm you, um, is that their life is really, really difficult. Every day they are fleeing, they're running from danger, they're attacked multiple times. And there's this scene in the book where the son asks the dad, he says, what's the bravest thing you ever did? And the dad says, getting up this morning. What an incredible insight that sometimes just the ability to say like, today might not be okay and yet I will take a step forward. Today might, I don't know the things, that, but I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of bed. Now I won't camp out here long because I don't think it takes much work to illustrate that life can be a gift. A gift. Some of you are here and you are, you are in the gift. And then it, but it can also be a, a burden. I don't know uh, half of the things that you all carry in this church. I don't know a tenth of the things you carry in this church, but here's what I know. I know that this is a church that has the, the struggle of infertility. I know that this is a church that has a struggle of loneliness. You long to get married, and yet it hasn't happened. I know that this is a church where there's endless marriage conflicts. I know this is a church where we have the burden and struggle of wayward children, the burden and struggle of wayward parents, 
I know this is a church that has struggles of addictions of all kinds. I know this is a church that has uh, cognitive challenges and dementia and disorders and physical ailments. I know this is a church that has psychological distress and, and OCD and ADD and ADHD and, and, and bipolar and borderline personality disorder. I know this is a church that has mean bosses. I know this is a church that has challenging employees. I know this is a church that has rude neighbors. I know this is a church that has people that didn't get the promotion they wanted and they really worked hard for it and it sure seems unfair. And I know this is a church that, that you didn't make the sports team you wanted or you didn't get to play the minutes you wanted or, or you weren't in the friend group that you really wanted and you just wanted somebody to say, I see you. I know this is a church that didn't know their dads. I know this is a church that wished they didn't know their dads. I know this is a church, like, the amount of life that's happened here, both the gift and the burden, it's unavoidable. It's okay to not be okay. I love how David Pallison says this. He says, the first thing is to recognize that the experience of anxiety or struggle, whatever it is, makes a lot of sense in a fallen world. The real miracle is that not everyone is in a continual panic attack and completely despairing. As Christian people, we are not immune to any of the pain or loss or heartache of living in a fallen world. And so I want to give you an invitation. This, it's okay to not be okay. It's um, really a reflection of uh, Sierra, who works on staff, just a wonderful uh, addition to our church. She has what is probably my favorite sweatshirt, and on her sweatshirt it says this, your brokenness is welcome that's the invitation of this house rule, is that your brokenness is welcome here. Whatever the distress, whatever the struggle, no matter how big or small, you don't have to hide. You don't have to get better. As much as we hope, everything gets better for you. And if we want this house rule to be real, let me give you a couple of handles for this. Um, we want to be a church that honors candor. Candor is the ability to be very forthright, to be very transparent, to be, be very upfront with where we're at. Um, think about Paul, and, and is, I read from 2 Corinthians 1.8. Think about what he was doing here, for we do not want you to be unaware. He's writing back to the church in Corinth, and then ultimately preserved in the Bible for everyone. To, he said, I don't want you to be unaware of how hard things have been. That's, a, that's an interesting way to begin a chapter or the, the first chapter of the Bible. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want to pretend behind this veneer that it's been easy. He says, I, I don't want you to be unaware that things were so hard that we despaired of life itself. Do you know what he's really saying there? I don't want to go on. Was he suicidal? I don't know. He's just saying, it's, it was so hard. There was moments where I, I hope the sun doesn't rise tomorrow. I don't want you to be unaware. It's candor. What's interesting and instructive for us in the passages we looked at is that there's this huge range of people that they were honest with. You have Elijah is very honest before God. You have Naomi who is very honest before her entire village. You have Paul, who is very honest with this church in Corinth, and us. You have Jesus, who is very honest with his Father in heaven, but also his close friends. He brought his three closest friends and said, would you come with me? 
And he didn't just pray to God. He didn't say, just pray with me. He actually told them, my soul is very sorrowful. He opened up his interior world in that way. And, and I, would get, I would suggest to you a takeaway of this, is that to practice candor in those three places, to practice candor with God, so we heard with Psalm 88, to practice this honesty with, with some trusted friends, and, and at times when the burdens are so heavy, maybe you, you practice that with your church. I don't know if we get to all three of those, but I want to give you an application with God. I was listening to a, pa- uh, pod- a podcast. I was listening to a podcast um, from CCF. It's a uh, Christian counseling education um, group. And uh, in it, they offered a way to pray uh, when intrusive thoughts come in or unreasonable fears uh, arise. It was a podcast primarily focused on, on OCD. And they said, oftentimes, this is how people pray in those situations, something like this. Like, you get, and I don't know about you, but sometimes those thoughts, they come in, and it's just like, whoa, that is wild. That is scary. I can't believe I could, I, I could think like that. And so they say, oftentimes, the way people pray is something like this, Lord, I am so sorry for thinking that. I can't believe I'd be the type of person who would think that. Would you please forgive me? And they suggest what I think is, is a more biblical and, I think, helpful response. They said, how about maybe you try this as we have candor before God in the midst of our distresses. Lord, that's a sad thought I just had. Would you be with me in it? That's a sad thing for me to think and to feel. Thank you that you care about this. See, we don't need to pray, God, I'm so sorry that I'm struggling right now. I'm sorry I let myself get discouraged. I'm sorry that life is getting me down. I'm sorry that I'm not courageous enough, strong enough, put together enough. I'm sorry that I haven't come up with a plan to figure it out. I'm sorry I haven't prayed enough. I'm just sorry that I'm struggling, God. I think we can maybe pray like, Father, I know you care. Thank you. I know you see it and it matters. Or maybe just, I'm not okay. Psalm 88 has something um, missing that is often present in the Bible when you get to these places of what's called lament, this ability to grieve before the Lord. There's maybe only a slight reference in verse 1 to it, but I think it's basically missing. Um, and it, and it's, 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 there's no I'm sorry for, or in Psalm 88, I'll get back to that. In this one, there's something missing in Psalm 88 um, that, that I think is telling for us. There's no I'm sorry, God, I'm struggling. There's just, I'm struggling. It wasn't there with Paul. It wasn't there with Jesus. It wasn't there with Elijah. It wasn't there with Naomi. There's no apology for feeling the brokenness of a broken world. There's just an honesty. I love how um, Paul David Tripp, in his book, Suffering, kind of puts this together. He says, God is not shocked or surprised that you are discouraged. He doesn't wring his hands, wondering what to do next. He knows every struggle of discouragement in your heart. He knows your cries before you cry. He knew that you and I would be weak. That's why he promised to be our strength. He's promised never to give up the battle for our hearts until the battle is finally won forever. This means he fights for us even when we have given up the fight. Our desire to follow him may weaken, but he will never give up or turn his back on us. He knows us because he made us, which is why he sent his son to be for us what we could not be for ourselves and to do for us what we could not do on our own. It's okay to not be okay. We want to cultivate an environment of honesty. Your brokenness is welcome here. 
Um, part of that comes from welcoming candor. Let me give you one more handle on this. If we're going to be a church that does this, we're going to be homes that do this, we're going to be families that parent this way and our friend groups do this. We want to welcome candor and we don't want to start a clock. We don't want to start a clock. I get a little twitchy when I hear this phrase, it's okay to not be okay, and then we add a punchline to it, but it's not okay to stay that way. Now, it's different than saying it's okay to not be okay and I don't want to stay that way. Or I sure hope I don't stay that way. Or I hope things don't stay that way. But when we, when we, we add this, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. What we're saying is you better hurry. You better get over this. You better figure this out, which is not going to be, create a place of honesty, but of worry and fear. When we say it's okay to not be okay, but you better not stay that way, what we're saying is your brokenness is welcome here for a while. But then put yourself together. Think back on Psalm 88. Um, this is attributed to uh, He-Man. He-Man. Uh, I love that. The Ezrathite. Um, and I believe that it's the only psalm he wrote. And it sure isn't happy. It's an unusual lament. This is what I was trying to say earlier. There's something that's missing from this psalm that's present in almost all the other places of the Bible where you have this idea of lament, of going before God and saying things just aren't really okay, and it's this, there's not a twinge of hope in it. Oftentimes in Psalms of Lament, it's like, but God, I know you're going to come to my rescue, but God, I know it's going to work. I know he doesn't do that. You know what? It starts with dark clouds and it ends in darkness. Test this idea of a clock being set with Job. If you, if you've read the Bible much, you've probably heard of Job. If you haven't, Job in the Bible is the, the, like the, the, the pseudo-ultimate sufferer. Jesus would be the ultimate. But, but Job, in, in a day, his, his children all die. His business is completely obliterated and destroyed. The raiders come and they steal all of his stuff. His children all die in this, in, in this massive windstorm. Uh, his wife, as a trusted counselor, uh, withholds her support and basically says, Job, things are so bad. How about you just curse God and die? So she's, he's lost the only person left that can speak any life into him. The next day, he loses all of his, his, his physical health. He, he's an exceeding pain. I mean, just, just all the suffering you can imagine wedged into about a day and a half. Let me ask you, how long is Job supposed to struggle? Like, what's the appropriate waiting period for him to struggle? In in the book of Job, what you have is his friends, they come and they sit with him. They sit with him for seven days, and everybody's just quiet because the suffering was so great. And then at the end of seven days, Job begins to speak, and then his friends begin to give terrible counsel. And God actually calls them, he chastises them at the end of the book for being such miserable comforters. Like, Job, yes, things were really tough, but let's get on. Let's, let's start moving forward now. Let's, let's start showing why that is. Let's, let's begin to lecture at you. So I guess the question is, how long does Job get to suffer? No doubt we want people to get better. We, we ourselves want to get better. We want sorrow to have less sting. We want addictions to have less power. We want conflict to have less fangs and bosses to be less mean. But we'll we want to avoid us prescribing for others how long it should take. To rush them as much as maybe sit with them and be present with them so that as they're able to take steps, we can walk alongside of them. I mean, let's just be honest. There are some wounds that this world dishes out 
that will not be healed until the new creation. There are some tears that have an anniversary to them. And they will come back year after year after year. It's okay to not be okay. Now that sentiment, again, our culture says it, but here's where I want to I take this. Um, it can't offer what Christianity and Christ can offer. It can't offer this guarantee. The reason we can be okay with not being okay and not despair is because of something that this world can't offer, but Jesus does, a new creation. See, it's okay to not be okay because one day, everything will be gloriously, wonderfully, eternally better than we can possibly imagine. That's the promise of Christ, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And I won't unpack these. I just want you to hear the words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What allows us to sit in the present moment with whatever the struggles are and say, It's okay to not be okay and not lose our minds or give up is the promise of a new creation that says, Oh, there's there's a day coming. It's a grand reversal, a great resurrection. And it allows us to sit in this present moment looking forward with future hope and not despair and be totally honest. I'm going to just three quotes from Tim Keller from his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, to capture this. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. All the stuff I listed that's in this church. Not a single thing will be in the new creation. Not even a memory of it. Again, Tim Keller, but resurrection, it's not just consolation, it is restoration. We get it all back. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. And one more, Christianity offers not merely a consolation, but a restoration, not just of the life we had, but of the life we always wanted, but never achieved. It's okay to not be okay. I really hope you find that true in this church. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. And because of Jesus, we don't have to despair. We can sit in the present sorrows and... Perhaps at some point in this sitting, we'll know that the sorrows won't win. It's okay to not be okay because one day, because of Christ, everything will be wonderfully, gloriously, perfectly, permanently, way more than okay. Whatever the struggle is, it's okay to not be okay. Now, if you remember the intro, 
I want to hit two categories, struggle and sin. And if you've looked at your clock, you know that we are almost out of time. And I did this intentionally. I want to hold these together, but we're, and we're not going to look at sin very long, but I want to keep these together in, in one unit for us. It's okay in struggles, and it's okay in sin. Um, we already mentioned uh, Paul and his despairing and the afflictions that he was facing. He, he was saying, I'm not okay. Um, Paul also said the same thing about his struggle with sin. And really, he said, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. Romans 7, 15 through 24. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And I know there's so much of this in this text that we're not going to have time to unpack. So I I just want to recognize that. I'm just going to give you the kind of the punchline point that he's making here in a minute. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a lot of debate about this passage. If you get into the weeds on it, there's a lot of debate. Is it before Paul became a Christian, after Paul became a Christian? All sorts. I will tell you, I've taken a historic uh, view of this. I believe it is after Paul became a Christian. And I'll just say from a personal standpoint, I think it is one of the best articulations of what it looks like to be Christians who want to look like Jesus and often struggle to. I mean, he's saying what we feel. Man, I want to be a good dad. I keep being dumb. Man, I want to be a good husband. I'm sure not loving my wife like Christ loved the church. I want to to be a more faithful pastor, but you know what? I really love to binge watch Netflix on Saturday night. (laughs) You know, whatever it is. You know, I just think it's this reality, just opening up your life and saying, I am a mess. As it comes to sin, I am not okay. I mean, I'm really good at it, which means it's just like, that's Okay. Paul's expressing what many of us feel on a daily basis. And then what he says in verse 25 of chapter 7 and verse 1 and following in chapter 8 is why it's okay to not be okay even in this area of sin before a holy God. Now, when I say this, it doesn't mean sin is safe. It doesn't mean sin serves anybody. It doesn't mean sin doesn't mess things up. It doesn't mean sin doesn't break things. It doesn't mean any of those things. But there's a louder and more sure word that is stamped across all of our lives as we have this battle between wanting to be that which we are not. Yet, Romans 7.24 and following says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I am not okay. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then verse 1 of of chapter 8, there is therefore now. Could you say these next two words with me? There is therefore now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we yoke up to him through faith, we say, I am not okay, but there's one who is perfect for me. And so it makes it okay. And I know one day he's going to transform me just like he is this creation. And one day I'll be okay. 
During this series in House Rules, we will talk about change and growth and transformation. The big fancy word in the Bible, sanctification, being set apart more and more for Christ and looking like him. That matters. But for today, I want you to focus on the perfect work of Jesus in our place. And how that frees us to be honest about where we're imperfect. With the hope that God's not done with us yet. Tim Keller preached a two-part series through Romans 7. And he had a line that captures really well what's going on. And why we can be okay with not being okay. He says this. Before Christ, the battle with sin is a battle we cannot win. But with Christ, it's a battle that's already ultimately won for us. So Jesus did in the gospel. Jesus came, entered into our sorrows and struggles. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. His soul was swallowed in sorrow. Tempted in every way as we are. And yet did not sin. And then the gospel, he went to a cross where he became our sin, that we might become his righteousness. He, he took on the, 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 the judgment and the consequences for us being a mess and being rebellious and sinning against a holy God, of being people that have this battle waging inside that lose to the battle all the time. Jesus never lost. And they went to a cross and he, and he took the loss for all of us that we might have his win. That's why it's okay to not be okay because Christ took the punishment of our not okayness. And then he rose from the dead as the declaration that, that one day we too will experience a new creation, a new life, a, a new ability that the war that's waging will be done. It's okay to not be okay because one day I'm going to be more than okay. And one day you in faith in Christ will be more than okay. Because of Jesus, we'll be perfectly more than okay. Now, the culture offers the same rule, but not even close to the power and effect of a being in Christ. It's okay to not be okay because in Christ, everything will be wonderfully more than okay. The entire creation, and even right now, us messes, will become a masterpiece. And until that day when everything is new, let me offer this slightly modified from the National Park Service to you. It's okay if you fall apart anytime. S'mores fall apart, and we still love them. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of ways that we can both receive this and push against it. Really what we're trying, what I'm trying to say, and I believe what your word is offering and what your grace offers us is the ability to be honest. God, we thank you that we don't live a defeatist religion, a defeatist belief that there's never growth, there's, there's never life, there's never joys, there's never the, the, the gifts of grace that change us and transform us and God, I thank you that we can sit in our hard stuff and, and say, I am, I am okay because I know how God has me. And that because of your grace, we can also sit in those situations and say, I'm not okay. And I, I'm, right now, it's hard for me to even believe God has me. Thank you that your love is so steadfast that it can encompass all of the human realities that we bring and all of the emotions and that they don't have to get weighed out and scored and measured and graded. 
but we can come like the psalmist of chapter 88 and we can come like Paul and we can come like Elijah and Naomi and Job and we can come like Jesus and just say, today's hard. And instead of apologizing, we can just ask that you help us know you're with us in it. And we can come like Paul and say, I, I, I'm a mess. I don't want to be, but, but you know what? If I'm honest, there's a lot of times I am. And then we can say, thanks be to God, who through Christ, we have no condemnation. Help us increasingly become a church that, that creates an environment of candor and that would spill out into our homes, our marriages, our friendships, our communities, our schools. The opportunity is to come back to the perfect work of Christ that makes it all possible. In Jesus' name, amen.